Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at verses 10 through 20. Uh, and if you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 979. Uh, 979, that's Ephesians 6, 1 through 10. The title of our sermon this morning is Spiritual Warfare. If you are joining us uh, for the first time this morning, it would be helpful to know that we are four weeks into an eight-week series uh, on the, the core values of Redeemer Baptist Church. Uh, in this series, we are asking the question, What kind of people do we need to be in order to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to us as his disciples here in Rinkin, Georgia in the year 2024 and beyond? We've sought to articulate this mission as succinctly as possible and as biblically as possible. Uh, concerning what we ought to be and what we ought to be striving to do as a faithful New Testament community of believers. Here is our attempt at that summary. We've said that Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So far, we have, in this series, considered two of seven values that the elders believe we must embrace in the pursuit of that mission. We said that since we exist to worship God with joy, we need to be a people who are committed to offering God acceptable worship in the method and manner that He has prescribed in His Word. We've said that Since we exist to love our neighbors, we need to love our neighbors lawfully in accordance with God's law that He has given to us in His Word. And so I trust that it's fairly plain to you how those first two values, acceptable worship and lawful love, have grown out of our mission statement. Today, and really for the next few weeks, we're going to be considering the third phrase in that mission statement, that We exist to see transformed lives. And today we are taking up this value of spiritual warfare. Transformed lives, in part, means that we are now in a war. And in particular, on a specific side of that war. And that brings us then to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul shows us the great wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whom God has chosen and predestined a people unto eternal adoption, graciously rescuing that people out of sin, darkness, and death, bringing them into righteousness, light, and life in His kingdom, uniting Jews and Gentiles alike through faith into one people, One body, one church, with Christ as head over all. And this, Paul says in Ephesians 3, proclaims the excellencies 
of God to all creation. In chapters 4 to 6, then, Paul works out what it means for us to live as God's people with this new life that we now have in Christ Jesus. Our relationship with sin, totally altered. Our relationship with others, altered. So too is our relationship with the spiritual forces that have arrayed themselves against God and His people. Paul's argument in these chapters builds to a climax of sorts here in verses 10 through 20, where he calls upon his readers to arm themselves for a fight. But he reminds his readers that this fight is not a fist fight, it is not a mere physical fight, but it is a deeply spiritual one. So I want to read these verses now, uh, give an outline for the sermon of where we're going, and then we'll get. To work. So look with me, Ephesians 6. I'm going to read all 10 verses here, 10 through 20. He writes, be, uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me also, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, We're going to look at this passage under three headings this morning. The first thing that I want you to see with me from verses 10 and 11, uh, we need to see our call to war. Second, in verse 12, We need to discover the identity of our enemy. And third, in 13 through 20, we need to learn what resources we have at our disposal and how to use them. So, uh, we are called to war, we have an enemy, and yet we also have resources at our disposal. So those are the three things under this. Uh, passage. Look with me first in verses 10 and 11 then. Paul calls his readers to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and to put on, he says, the armor of God, the whole armor of God. Friends, let us make no mistake. The Christian life is a battle. Think about it. Where do you wear armor? We don't wear armor to a picnic or a playground. 
we wear it to war. Jesus wants us to be aware of this. He requires would-be followers to count the cost of signing up to be his disciples. Think about it in Luke 14. Jesus describes Christian discipleship in terms of military conquest. So beginning in verse 31, he says, What king going out to war would not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000, meet the one who comes against him with 20,000? He says, count the cost of this discipleship. But if you find that troubling, we really won't like what he says elsewhere. We find arguably his most striking statement regarding the bellicose nature of the Christian life in Matthew 11. John the Baptist has sent a delegation of disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus were in fact the Messiah. Jesus responds uh, essentially in the affirmative, and after those disciples depart back to John, uh, Jesus tells those who were remaining with him, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently, and the violent take it by force. Friends, we must not miss the point. Jesus demands of us a mean and violent streak if we are to be his followers. But that raises a necessary question, doesn't it? Violence against what? Or whom? That brings us to a second heading this morning. The enemy that we face in verse 12. Paul explicitly names one here. It's a group of things, but they all mostly fit in one category. But he mentions two others, two other categories of enemy that earlier in the letter that we'll get to. But let's start here in Ephesians 6. He says, we fight against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil who are in the heavenly places. Paul's words here tell us something vital about the nature of this enemy. We live in an embattled world. A haunted cosmos, if you will. The spiritual forces that exist in this world are many. And there are spiritual forces that exist in the universe who are warring against the kingdom of God and every one of its citizens. This war, in other words, is a territorial one. This is the language, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. It's a territorial war, a geographical one, and nothing less than every square physical and metaphysical inch of the universe is being contested. But we should be clear. There are some Christians who seem to believe that every single negative thing in their lives must be accounted for by direct demonic activity. We claim no such thing here. 
However, it would be wrong to view the sins and sorrows of the world as completely unrelated to evil spiritual forces in the universe. Paul himself in this passage says in verse 16 that we must take up the shield of faith when? In all circumstances that we may extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. So it may not be that everything, negative thing that happens to you, is an attack of evil spiritual forces. But it is true that in every circumstance in which you find yourself, you may be in the crosshairs. Paul also commands in verse 18 here, he says we should be praying at all times. But is that it? Is that all the, the enemy that we face. That would be enough, honestly. But that is not the only enemy that the Christian has. The common way of articulating Christian warfare um, is to say that the Christian has three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I mentioned this earlier. Paul seems to have those uh, three distinctions in mind earlier in the letter in Ephesians 2. I'm going to read the first three verses of Ephesians 2, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear that dis- those distinctions with me. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear it? The world, the flesh, and the devil there working in concert. Now the world in this context is not earth. He's not talking about just the physical planet, physical creation. It's the the system of disobedience and lofty opinions that have been raised against the knowledge of God. Raised against the kingdom of God. The world, in other words, is the kingdom of man, as we've called it before. He describes the flesh here as well. Now, flesh can also be misunderstood. We are not talking... uh, Certainly not entirely or even really specifically or primarily about our physical bodies. The flesh is not fundamentally a physical thing. It is our sinful nature. And yet, it is not entirely unrelated to our physical bodies, even in the way that Paul describes it here. Your body is not, we should be clear, not a prison of sin from which you need ultimate release. But it is the immediate context in which your heart operates. What I mean is that your heart's desires are mediated through your body out into the world around you. And the world around you is in turn mediated to your heart through your body. So there is an important interplay between your physiology and your obedience and disobedience to Christ, but it is not all. Your flesh is your sinful nature 
that you inherited from Adam. But all of these things, though, lest we get in too much into the weeds or confused about how to fight, the truth is all three of these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, often work together in concert. And I want to come back to that later, but I want to simply state the fact now. They don't work together as mere separate strands, individual strands, often. Often it is together in concert that they work. So again, we'll come back to that. But we need to get to our resources. Third heading here. We're called to war, ultimately called by Jesus himself to fight against three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's daunting, but fear not. Because we see in this next set of verses in 13 through 20, we see the great resources that we have at our disposal. Now in verse 11 and 13, Paul calls in summary form our resources, he calls it the armor of God. Isaiah 65, 17 stands as background for Paul's exhortation here. That passage describes our Savior thusly. It says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and He wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So the armor of God is comprised of those graces worn by Christ Himself during the days of His earthly ministry, by which He Himself did battle against the evil one. The armor of God is comprised of those graces that He wore and now richly provides to us for our own fighting in this war. Now another way we could say this, though, is that the armor of God is Christ Himself. We saw this last week in Romans 13, 14. Earlier in that passage, we had been called to put on the armor of light. And we do that, we saw at the end, by putting on Christ Himself. And this is very important. We put on Christ in this warfare. We put on Christ and His graces. We do this both legally and practically. The graces of Christ, described here in terms of faith, righteousness, readiness, salvation, these graces are ours legally on the one hand by virtue of our union with Christ in His life, death, and resurrection through justifying faith. These graces are ours on the other hand by actual possession in increasing measure and practical use through sanctifying faith. So the faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies. But because the armor is Christ Himself, not just the benefits you get from Christ, it is only those who have put on Christ and his armor formally, legally, who can put the armor on practically, who can make any use of it. So consider each of them with me here. First, we have the belt of truth. The belt of truth marks the one who wears it into battle against an enemy of lies. The devil, 
we're told, is a liar from the beginning. So the belt of truth preserves the one who wears it and enables him to move effectively through the fight. Proverbs 19.9 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. So we put on the belt of truth, how? By first trusting in the Messiah who is truth itself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we put on the belt by trusting in Christ, but we also put it on by growing in practical love for the truth. Do you love the truth? God is the God of truth. And so if you're going to love God, you must love the truth. We live in a day and age that is very confused about the truth. Either doesn't know what it is at all or hates it entirely. So we must be a people of truth. But he also calls us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is Christ by virtue of his sinless life in perfect accord with the righteous standards of God's law. By that life, he has been fit, he has been made fit to stand as our representative before God. And his righteousness is therefore ours by faith, both for justification and for sanctification, for being made right with God and for growing in likeness to Christ. Through faith, we are declared and constituted as righteous, and through faith, we actually grow in righteousness in life. As Christ empowers us for holy living through the Spirit. So we have righteousness credited to us and righteousness that we grow in in this fight. The shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. They were always worn by our Lord Jesus. Jesus was swift to proclaim the gospel that offered peace to those who were at enmity with God. And so too must our feet be shod with the readiness to make a defense for the hope that is within us as we honor Christ as Lord and as holy in our hearts. The shield of faith allows us to defend against the flaming darts of unbelief sent our way from the evil forces that we face. Think about it. Unbelief. Sowing doubt and unbelief is one of the central tactics of our enemy. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, did the serpent not come to Eve sowing doubt? What was the question? Did God really say? Or what about his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Did he not then come sowing doubt? If you are the Son of God. At His baptism, God had told Jesus, You are my beloved Son. And the first thing Satan says to Him out in the wilderness is, What are you though? Faith then defends against these doubts by uniting us to Christ who perfectly trusted in His Father. And it defends against these doubts, faith does, by working out the consequences 
of his perfect trust, working out the consequences of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension in every aspect of our lives. The helmet of salvation represents the finished work of Christ for his people in justifying them and the ongoing work of Christ in his people to sanctify them. And it protects our mind from the assaults of the evil one. And so, brothers and sisters, put on the helmet. Rejoice in the assurance of God's promises to you. Not just what He has done for you already, but what He is doing in you now and will continue to do in you until the day of Jesus Christ. We have the sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us is the Word of God. This sword was Christ's weapon to make war against the evil one every single day of his life. Read the Gospels and you will find that not only did Jesus speak the truth in general terms, but Scripture in particular terms was constantly on his lips. Whether he was resisting the devil's temptations in the wilderness or he was casting out demons in the towns or he was avoiding the traps of the Pharisees or he was hanging on the cross, the word of God was on his lips. And so God's word word should likewise constantly be in our mouths that we may actually go on the offensive and fight and conquer the gates of hell that Jesus has promised will not prevail against the strategies and the warring of the church. So those are the weapons of our warfare. And notice how comprehensive they are. Think about it. What, what part of you is left vulnerable to attack and undefended if you are wearing the whole armor of God? Nothing. You are perfectly protected. But having weapons and knowing how to use them are two different things. Proverbs 20.18 says, Plans are established by good counsel. By wise guidance, wage war. So I want to close um, with some several points of application uh, so that we may be well-trained to use these weapons properly. The first thing. Uh, soldiers in a war will be most effective when they are convinced of the necessity of the war. Right? They're convinced of the necessity of the war, they will be most effective. Consider several verses of uh, this hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? by Isaac Watts. He pens, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause, or blush to speak His name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? (coughs) Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by Thy Word. Now perhaps you're thinking, Pastor, that's great. But what does Scripture 
say about the necessity of this fight? I'm glad you asked. John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So make war against your love of the world. The writer to the Hebrews says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So make war against the flesh. Peter says, resist the devil who is a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Resist the devil. Make war against him. Of course, we are not talking about works righteousness here. Would you be saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? Good. That is the only way. But don't forget, let us not forget that James says that faith without works is no faith at all. It's dead. And so, if our faith is good for anything, it will produce in us a violent streak against sin, against the devil, and against the allurement of the world. We will fight. We will not love the world. We will not fail to mortify sin in some degree and measure. And we will not fall prey to the devil and his schemes. This is a most necessary fight. A non-negotiable fight. I'd like to offer these next two points uh, together. Um. So we must be convinced that, uh, that the warfare is necessary, but we also must understand that it is good and that victory is certain. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle draw, draws these two things together, the, the goodness of the fight and the certainty of, of victory. He says spiritual warfare is good for a number of reasons, one of which is because it is fought under the best of generals who guarantees victory. It's a long quote, but listen to this one. The leader and commander of all believers is our divine Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A Savior of perfect wisdom, infinite love, and almighty power. The captain of our salvation never fails to lead his soldiers to victory. He never makes any useless movements, never errs in judgments, never commits any mistake. His eye is on all His followers, from the greatest of them, even to the least. The, most, the, the humblest servant in His army is not forgot, forgotten. The weakest and most sickly is cared for, remembered, and kept unto salvation. The souls whom He has purchased and redeemed with His blood are far too precious to be wasted and thrown away. The battle is necessary, friends, but it is also good. And victory is certain for the people of God. But what about a strategy? What does warfare actually look like? We need a plan. How do we engage in this spiritual battle? How do we mortify sin, resist the devil, and reject the allurements of the world? 
Well, remember, I said they work together so often in concert with one another, these three enemies. And so a really good place to begin is to remember that the devil made me do it is no legitimate excuse. Think about what Peter says. I've referenced this passage a couple times. 1 Peter 5, 8. Following, he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. But just before those words that I just quoted to you there, he says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Paul calls us to watchfulness here in Ephesians 6. Verse 14, stand therefore. Stand guard. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. We have a genuine responsibility here in this war. Thomas Brooks, in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he reminds us, no temptations do harm the saints so long as they are resisted by them. He says, it's not Satan's tempting, but your assenting. Not his enticing, but your yielding that makes temptations hurtful to your soul. What does Paul say in Colossians 3? Put to death what is earthly within you. We must engage our thoughts, our desires, and our commitments. Not just external behaviors. To put something to death requires hatred. I saw a quote in uh, Brooks. um, He was quoting Anselm. The quote goes something like this. If I should see the shame of sin on the one hand and the pain of hell on the other and must of necessity choose one, I would rather be thrust into hell without sin than to go to heaven with sin. I would rather be thrust into hell without sin than to go to heaven with sin. Do you love the world? Do you love what it offers to you? Comfort, fame, pleasure? Do you love sin? Or do you hate it? If you do not hate your sin, you will never find much success in putting it to death. We must hate wickedness. But hatred isn't enough. Hatred won't suffice. We must love righteousness. Here are uh, two affection-warming strategies that I want to commend to you. Neither of them will surprise you. One, prayerfully read, memorize, and meditate upon God's Word. Turn passages over in your mind, over and over. Consider them. Consider their meaning. Consider their application. Do you notice regarding uh, prayerfully reading how Paul holds prayer and Scripture together in Ephesians 6. He says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So if you're reading the Bible and you're struggling to care about it, 
or to read it more, I would encourage you to read it prayerfully, to pray before, during, and after reading. Or if your prayers are struggling because you don't have the words, you're just rambling on, perhaps you should read before, during, and after praying. Read and pray, pray and read. But a second heartwarming strategy here is don't, don't do these things alone. I mean, do these things alone, but only, don't only do them alone. Some of our Bible reading and praying, obviously, has to be alone and in private. But notice, Paul says, hey, pray for this, all the saints and pray for me as well. Don't just pray for yourself. Don't just pray by yourself. Come to the prayer meeting Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, 9 a.m. Or start a different prayer meeting. Or come to the evening service tonight. Call a friend midweek and say, hey, can we pray together for 10 minutes? Pray together. Pray alone and pray with other Christians. But there's, there's more to be said about strategy for warfare than just these two. And that's what I want to do over the next couple of weeks. And so let me set up where, we're, where we've been and where we're going, tie it all together, and then we'll be done. Um, so I want to connect the previous three sermons and set up these next four. Today, we've made explicit something that we've assumed up to this point. We're at war. We've to this point, described the battlefield primarily as one regarding worship, right? Whom will I worship? Will I worship God or myself? If we worship ourselves instead of God, we will fail to love other people in any real meaningful way. Since loving others, as we saw last week, is inescapably defined by what God has said in His Word and His law. We've also said, in anticipation of where we're going, that we will also end up as nothing more than ungrateful, stingy, divisive people who will leave nothing of lasting value to the people who come after them if we perpetually worship ourselves. And so... Longing to see transformed lives, we engage in this liturgical warfare. This warfare of worship against the spiritual forces of evil. And we do that in no small part by embracing the remaining values that we're going to discuss in the weeks ahead. How do you make war? By being a thankful person. How do you make war? By extending hospitality to neighbors and strangers and those who are in need. How do you make war? By refusing to divide when you should be united. How do we make war? By looking beyond ourselves, beyond the present moment of the next eight minutes, look decades or centuries into the future Seeking to leave a godly legacy for generations to come. That's how we make warfare as we 
as we long for these transformed lives, as God transforms us into people who image Christ rather than the, the people kept in darkness by our sin, the world, and the devil before.